Bulldogs, with the Bulldogs on the winning side, of course. But basketball season, at least for college basketball, I don't know what sports you do over there. I don't know about that. But college basketball season has come to an end. Last Monday night, when the game was ending, I was on a plane going from Atlanta, a delayed flight going from Atlanta to Houston, and arrived, and when I walked off the plane about 1.30 in the morning, apparently San Diego State, one of the teams that was playing in the national championship, either was flying out of that gate later that evening or early in the morning because they had a big display, San Diego State, you know, go Aztecs and all these types of things on there. I was reflecting as I was working on the sermon this week about basketball. Now, baseball is my best sport. West Point is a football town, but I gave up football in the seventh grade because everybody else hit a growth spurt, and I did not. And so I just gave that up, and I gave up basketball in the eighth grade because I did not know this. They had passed a rule in Mississippi high school sports that you were limited to three dunks per game. And I wasn't going to play if I could not go full force. Do you know... There are lots of rules in basketball, but I'm about to give you the most important principle in that sport. Now, there's, there are rules about dribbling, there are rules about shooting, playing defense, committing fouls, but out of everything that you can know about the sport of basketball, the absolute most important part is possessing the basketball. If you have control of the basketball, then you have opportunity to score. And if you score more than the other team, you can win. If you have possession of the basketball, then the other team doesn't have possession of the basketball. They have no opportunity to score. If they, if they cannot score, they cannot win. Now, there are lots of other building blocks. Learning how to dribble, learning how to dribble with your offhand, hand, making sure that your shot is accurate, blocking out so that other teams can't get the rebound. There are lots of other ideas in basketball, but the number one principle for winning is you must possess the basketball. This is a very thick book that those of us who have our faith in Jesus Christ read and study. We memorize and try to get life lessons from it. And if you have a Bible like I do, it has well over 14 or 1500 pages. But today we're going to talk about what is most important at the very heart of everything that we believe. Would you open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? Paul wrote two different letters to this church. Both of them had some very difficult issues in it. There were, were problems in the church, and so Paul communicated some important ideas to them about here's what you need to do about this problem and how you deal with ish, this issue and, and how you can handle this particular problem. But when he got over into the latter part of the book, he wrote about some theological principles. And here's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Verse 3, for I passed on to you as the most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day 
according to the scriptures. And then it goes on to talk about how Jesus appeared to Peter and the other apostles. I love that video that we watched right before the message because it includes a Bible detail that, that sometimes we might miss. When John wrote about learning that Jesus had been raised from the dead, when the women came to report to them, Jesus has risen, we have seen him with our eyes. The Bible says that Peter immediately raced out of the upper room where they were gathered and that John went with him, but Peter got a little bit of a head start. And then John included a detail that probably a woman would not have included, but John made sure to say, I outran him. I got there first. I can picture as Peter was running, hearing John's steps coming behind him, seeing John come up and pass him, saying, you better not write about this. I won't. I only care about seeing Jesus. Don't write that you are faster than I am. You know I wouldn't do that. I beat Peter to the grave. <laughs> and he did. Paul said that Jesus died on a cross for our sins was buried and rose again on the third day is the most important reality. It's the most important truth that people who sit in pews can believe. Why? Why is the reality of the resurrection crucial for our faith? I'm not, I'm not guessing, I'm not hypothesizing here. What I'm telling you is the absolute truth. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, this building on this hill would not exist. There would not be a church anywhere on this planet. There would not be any place where people gathered to worship Jesus Christ. Because Jesus made a claim that he would die and then rise again. And if he could not deliver on that claim, if he could not keep it, then people would say he was a fraud, and he would have been. But Jesus did rise from the, from the dead. Why is the resurrection important? I'd like to talk about four ideas over the next two and a half hours or so. First, the Bible tells us that the resurrection is important because it says that the message is real. Look at what Jesus said, or look at what Paul said in verses 13 and 14. He said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, and then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Paul said, look, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then every sermon that I've ever preached is worthless. I, Paul said, I've been preaching about how, how uh, you, we can have joy and peace. I, I've been preaching about how we can have hope that cannot be shaken. Paul said, however, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, all of those sermons are worthless. They are not true. The message about new life in Christ, that, that the old is gone and the new has come, he said those messages are not true. If the resurrection isn't a reality then we do not have the power for living as new creations. Imagine with me that there's some trip that you really want to take. 
Maybe, maybe your college team plays in a national championship of some sort, and so you order your tickets, and you get ready to go, and you say, hey, we're going to make this trip. Or maybe there's a big family vacation that you'd like to take. You're gathering up family, and you're going to go out west and make a tour, or maybe there's a vacation from your family that you're looking forward to taking, so you're making plans to leave them at home so that you can go away somewhere. Maybe there's a, a big concert that you want to see, and so you go through all all of the hassle of ordering those tickets online and you secure those tickets and you get ready to go. Whatever the trip is, just imagine that you have a, a very big trip. You're excited about it. You're eager to make it. You're enthusiastic about it. And so early one morning, you get out of the house and you load the luggage in the car and then you either put the key into the ignition or you push the button and nothing happens. push it again, you turn the key again, you start thinking, no, we've got to go to the concert, we're going to this, to this big event, we're going to something really special, we're going to Dollar General. And so you start thinking about, but if the car battery has no power, then you can't get to where you want to go. You will be stuck in the driveway. Paul said, without the resurrection, we have no power. We have no new life. Every sermon that you've ever heard, Paul said, is worthless without the resurrection. He said, the message isn't real. This, this promise of new life is not valid without the resurrection. And so one reason that the resurrection is of most importance is because it is a signal that the message is real. Paul said something else, though. He said that the message of the resurrection also proves that our sins are forgiven. Look down in verse 17 with me. Paul said, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Now, we all know if you have a faith background that the reason that Jesus went to the cross is to pay the price for our sins. He told people, I've come to seek and to save the lost. I've come to reclaim those who are wandering from God. I've come to make peace with those who are enemies of God and shaking their fists in his face. I am going to make that peace, Jesus said, by dying. Every person in this building... Every individual who has ever lived on this planet and breathed air is a sinner. That's an offense to our pride. We don't like admitting that. We, we may say, well, I've made some mistakes here or there. Maybe I didn't really do this as well as I should have. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not any of us escapes that category. Jesus said, I'm going to make possible salvation for every single one of those sinners. I'm going to do something that has significance of cosmic proportions. In a mystery that you and I cannot understand, the, the brightest theological scholars in all of the world cannot answer, how did God die when Jesus hung on the cross? But he did. Jesus taking our place said the sins that you have committed, the sins that I have committed, now have payment for them. And in simple repentance and faith, when we say, Jesus, please come save me, 
in a split second. He does. But without the resurrection, our sins still would be hanging over our heads. If Jesus told people, I am going to die for your sins, but he's still in the grave, how would we know that sins could be forgiven? Did the Father accept the payment or not? Jesus came out of the grave to validate that his payment was sufficient. And he is able, what the book of Hebrews says, is able to save to the uttermost those who will turn to him. Now there is a passage over in the book of 1 John. In fact, there are several passages in the book of Hebrews that say something similar. That talk about Jesus as our advocate or Jesus as our high priest. And there was a time when my understanding of what Jesus was doing was off base. You might have had this thought at some point, too, where Jesus interceding for us was pleading with the Father. Now, what I'm saying here is the mistaken view, not the true view. And, and we would picture Jesus saying, oh, Father, I know she sinned. I know she gossiped about that person. I know she said that that person's dress was too tight and she needed to have gotten a new one for Easter this year. But God, please give her one more chance. We picture Jesus as, Father, yes, he, he got angry at that ball game and he said some words that he shouldn't have, but please, please, for my sake, would you give him just one more chance? And that's the way that I used to picture when I was a teenager that Jesus was going to bat for me saying, Father, please, please just give him one more chance. Don't strike him down. But that, that, that notion is not the theological reality. That picture isn't at all how Jesus is interceding for us. It isn't at all the way that he is our advocate. Here is the way that Jesus advocates for us. Here's the way that he appeals to the Father. Father, yes, she did dishonor you with what she said. What she did was a sin. It was wrong. But I died for it. And it's been paid for. Father, yes, he dishonored you, he disobeyed you, he sinned against you. But that sin that he committed is just another one of those for which I died. The account is settled, it is paid for. There's no judgment to give. Right around the corner from here is a house where I used to live up until about two years ago. And one of the happiest days that I ever experienced was when I was a day that I got an official looking brown envelope in the mail. Wasn't an arrest warrant or anything like that. <laughs> I had really been working to pay off that house. I could not stand, I, I still cannot stand the thought of being in debt. I don't like it. I don't like owing anybody any money or anything like that. I grew up on the streets of West Point. You can get killed for owing money to people. And so I just don't like owing money to anybody. And so every spare dime that I could get, some months... I, I'm not exaggerating. Some months the extra principal that I would mail in would be $30. But little by little by little, I kept working and working and working. And then finally, one day, that envelope 
from the bank, the Citizens National Bank is who had the mortgage, and then they sold it. And so I got that, that envelope and opened it up, and inside was the deed to my property with a red stamp on it, paid in full. I took that deed to the safety deposit box, and not one night afterward did I ever fear that I would hear make my way to the door and there be law enforcement officials saying we're taking possession of the house. I never feared that some bank collector, some repo man was ever showing up to say, hey, we are going to take over the house, and the reason is because it was paid for. The reason that the resurrection is important is because it gives me the loud and clear message, every sin I've ever committed is paid for. And yours too, if you have received Jesus Christ as Savior. Paul said, the resurrection is important because it shows us that our sins have been forgiven. But he kept going. In verse 19, he says that the resurrection is a reminder that we live with eternal treasures, not just temporary life. In verse 19, Paul said, if we have put our hope in Christ for, Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Now, don't say, don't say amen too quickly because I'm about to clarify something. I have heard people say, Perhaps have even said it myself. I know I, I, I've heard it in conversations that people have made this statement. Even if there's no heaven, I'm still glad that I'm living this way. They think about the friends that they have. They think about, you know, gathering with people. They say, even if, you know, if, if there's no life after the grave, then I'm still glad that I chose to profess being a Christian. Perhaps you've thought that. Paul said that thinking is absolutely ludicrous. He said if there is no heaven, then we are to be the most pitied of all men. Paul said, listen to what I've endured. I've gone to prison for preaching Jesus Christ. I've been beaten nearly half to death, more than half to death, numerous times. Paul said, I've been abandoned, I've been rejected, they, they've, they've stoned me, I've spent nights hanging on to boards in the ocean because the ship that I was on, on, on a missionary journey, uh, was, was broken apart and I was clinging for my life. Paul said, if there is nothing after the grave, let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we die. The resurrection reminds us that the greatest sacrifices we could make for the name of Jesus Christ are worth the reward that is coming. So, for me and perhaps some of you who have made that thought, we perhaps need to examine the level of sacrifice we're making to Jesus Christ. If we say, well, you know what? E even if there is no heaven, I'm still glad that I'm living this way. We might want to ask ourselves, are we living the way that Jesus called us to? Because 
the persecution that we would endure, the sacrifices we would make would cause us to say, no, no, I've, I've got to look to heaven. We live with eternal treasures. We aren't locked into temporary blessings. Let me give you an example. Suppose that you spent a night in a hotel. Now, maybe you are in the more expensive hotels. Typically, I get in the Motel 5, can't even afford the Motel 6. And so, in the Motel 5, sometimes it's just a blue tarp in the parking lot that they put up and let you slide in. But let's imagine that you are spending a night in a hotel. And when you walk in the room, you look in the hotel room, and you say, I hate the color of these walls. Who, who thought that this color would be good for a hotel room? And then you look at the carpet and you say, and this carpet is abysmal. Why do they even think that this carpet would look decent? You look at the bedspread and you say, the bedspread doesn't even match the rest of the room. Look at this, look at this nightstand. The drawer is kind of halfway and it won't even shut all the way. And you go into the shower and there's hardly any water pressure in there. If you were to discover that the hotel room had some issues and problems, I seriously doubt you would lie awake at night thinking, how am I going to make this hotel room look better? You would not run to Lowe's or Home Depot and start finding you know, some paint to cover the walls. You wouldn't call a local carpeting place and say, hey, would you come down and give me an estimate on replacing the floor in this hotel room? I can't even stand to look at it. You wouldn't call a plumber and say, hey, would you get down here? I'm willing to pay out of my own pocket for this uh, hotel room's uh, shower pressure to be fixed. You wouldn't do any of those things. You wouldn't have to go see a therapist and say, you just don't know the trauma that I had to endure because of the color of the walls and the carpet and the mismatched furniture. And the reason that none of those issues would bother you is because you are checking out in the morning. You're there for a little while, and then you're moving on. For those of us who know Jesus Christ, the struggles that we have in life, though I am not in any way minimizing them, are nothing but an unpleasant night in a hotel. And the reason that we don't get upset and start churning about them is because we know we are checking out tomorrow. I'm about to tell you something that's going to make some people uncomfortable, but it is the truth. One of the reasons that people live in fear, anxiety, worry, their emotions are always churning, is because they do not have hope for tomorrow. This is all that they have. This is it for them. Paul said, look, in verse 19, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we are to be pitied. And one of the reasons that there are people who are paralyzed by the problems that they are facing is because they know, I don't have any hope for anything but this. This is it for me. 
And they can't look forward because they know that now is all they have. So Paul said, here are three reasons the resurrection is important. So that we can know the message is true. That, that the sermons do have power for new life. So that we can know that our sins are forgiven. So that we can be reminded that we shouldn't allow the temporary troubles in this life to overwhelm us. And then Paul said there's one other reason that the resurrection is important. Read with me beginning down in verse 23, please. But each in his own order, meaning, hey, we're all going to come alive again if we know Christ. Christ, the first fruits, afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Did you hear how often Paul said words like something about everything and all? Every circumstance in this world is under the control of Jesus Christ. Paul did not say he's going to subdue some of his enemies, most of his enemies, nearly all of his enemies. He did not say that God is going to be some in some. He said all in all. Jesus Christ reigns. Sometimes I will, I will acknowledge, I will admit it. Sometimes it looks as if the circumstances in this world appear that Jesus is losing. But he is not losing. Every enemy is under his feet. And we are simply waiting for the day when he closes the curtain of human history. And at that point, something that every person on this planet is going to do will happen. Scripture makes this promise. Every man, woman, college student, teenager, boy, and girl who has ever lived in the history of this planet, however long it has been spinning, will say one sentence. Jesus is Lord. Nobody, not Adolf Hitler, not Saddam Hussein, not Osama bin Laden, not the person that you believe is the furthest from God, will escape saying, Jesus is Lord. You will do that. I will do that. We all will say, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I think it's a much better way to voluntarily say Jesus is Lord and live our lives for him rather than as his enemy be crushed and have to admit we were wrong, Jesus is Lord. Of all the truths in God's word, that Jesus died on a cross for our sins, was buried and rose again on the third day is the most important. It's the most crucial. 
And because of what Jesus did that day, this day and every other day is different. Now, I'm going to ask our musicians to come, and they're going to lead us in a closing song of commitment. You never know who gathers in a church building on a Sunday morning. Perhaps there are people who are here, and you have never received Jesus Christ as Savior. In just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn together. And as we sing, if there are people who have questions about how to begin a relationship with God, I will be standing right here at the front for just a moment. And we'll be glad to talk with you and pray with you. If there are other ways that God's speaking to you, I'll be glad to talk with you about anything that that is on your heart this morning. Let's all stand together as we sing, please.